0: Hello and welcome to Beckett And, a monthly podcast focusing on the work and life of Samuel Beckett alongside some of the major issues, ideas and art of our time. My name is Conor Carville, and we're coming to you from the Samuel Beckett Research Centre at Reading University. Hello, and welcome to the first edition of Beckett and, a podcast from the University of Reading's Samuel Beckett Research Centre. My name's Connor Carville, and I'm co-director of the Centre alongside Stephen Matthews. And I'm going to talk to you today about a thread that I see running through Beckett's work as a way of introducing the podcast and setting us up for the monthly editions to come. So I'm going to talk about Beckett and Life. This might sound like a, a kind of self-help title, a kind of manual for how to live with Beckett with Beckett's works as a guide. Something along the lines of how Proust changed my life. Indeed Beckett has been recruited to that kind of positive thinking industry on many occasions, most notably through the famous phrase now from Worst Words Ho, try again, feel again, feel better. A slogan which seems particularly attractive to manufacturers of sports equipment I've noticed. As if It's an exhortation to to go for a run along the lines of just do it. And Beckett was very fond of sport. The actor Jack McGowan tells the story of how when he first met Beckett, he, he didn't know what to say until he broached the subject of rugby. And after that, they talked about cricket, tennis, football, golf, cycling and gymnastics. But even so, it's not sport that Beckett is talking about. When he's talking about feel better it's not a slogan that's not what he's saying and it's not what he's saying at the end of the unnameable either another famous phrase go on i can't go on i'll go on that last phrase i'll go on it's not an effort of will that he's talking about there the unnameable whatever entity it is that is speaking in that novel The unnameable goes on being, goes on speaking, because he or she cannot not speak, cannot not be. They have no choice in the matter. Beckett's characters are at the mercy of life. Life is seen by Beckett as a force, a blind organic process in which we somehow participate. I think the ultimate source for this attitude towards life in Beckett is his first and greatest philosophical love or to Schopenhauer. Like all the thinkers Beckett was attracted to, Henri Bergson being another, Schopenhauer is a writer as much as a philosopher. He's a very literary philosopher, and images from Schopenhauer's prose crop up again and again in Beckett's work, right from the beginning. And what these images often illustrate is Schopenhauer's idea of the will. For Schopenhauer, the will is a force that underpins all existence. It's a, a single unitary ground for life, or the groundswell of life, to use Beckett's own words in his first novel, Dream of Fair to Middling Women. The groundswell of life. It's not attached, this life, to any being or any mind, supernatural or otherwise. It mustn't be confused with intention. It's a pure striving according to the German philosopher. When I think of this I always think of another German, the film director Werner Herzog and some footage of him in the Amazon when he was making his film, this great film Fitzcarraldo, a very Schopenhauerian film. Anyway somebody's interviewing him and he's in the middle of the forest, in the middle of the jungle, the Amazon and there's a profusion of leaves and tendrils and vines and trees all around him and he's talking about these are his words quote overwhelming misery overwhelming fornication overwhelming growth overwhelming lack of order you know there's this sense of a proliferation which no one has control of a kind of organic um, excess I think that's quite Schopenhauerian in a way not necessarily to associate the will with with nature, though. I'll come back to that. Anyway, he did love Schopenhauer, did Samuel Beckett. But again, it's not to say that this is a subjective thing, that this will, even though that word implies to us intention, is not necessarily a self that is doing the willing. Rather, the self, in Schopenhauer and I think in Beckett, is kind of flogged on by this strange, implacable drive over which it has no control. So when, I'm ta- when I call this first podcast, Beckett and Life, this is the vision that I'm talking about. This is the vision of life. This This idea of a force that sustains itself through us. As Beckett's character Malone puts it, my life, my life... Now I speak of it as something over, now as of a joke which still goes on, and it is neither, for at the same time it is over and it goes on. And is there any tense for that? Now one of the things that happens often in Beckett's work, and this is the thread, one of the threads that I'm I'm talking about, one of the things that happens in several of his plays and novels and stories is that everything except this drive, everything except this Life is removed from the characters, stripped from them, and yet they continue on at degree zero, so to speak. You know, the players sometimes, and, and the prose, there seem to be sometimes deliberate attempts to get at this core compulsion. And sometimes the stripping of characters is thematized and it's referred to by the characters themselves, even as they endure it. In the play Endgame, for example, the character Ham says, I once knew a madman who thought the end of the world had come. He was a painter and engraver. I had a great fondness for him. I used to go and see him in the asylum. I'd take him by the hand and drag him to the window. Look, there, all that rising corn. And there, look, the seals of the herring fleet, all that loveliness. He'd snatch away his hand and go back into his corner. Appalled. All he had seen was ashes. So here you see the first thing to be removed and stripped away from the character here is is aesthetic pleasure. You know, pleasure in nature. The seals of the herring fleet. I think that's probably a reference to a painting, a Dutch painting. Maybe by Van Goyen or someone like that. Um... You know, this character, the painter, can't see the beauty that um, Ham is trying to show him. Um, And that's a kind of model for something that happens later in the play. And Clove, who is Ham's kind of servant type figure. Clove says the following, describing a similar experience to that of the madman. They said to me, that's friendship. Yes, yes, no question, you found it. They said to me, here's the place. Stop, raise your head and look at all that beauty, that order. They said to me, come now, you're not a brute beast. Think upon these things and you'll see how all becomes clear and simple. They said to me, what skilled attention they get, all those dying of their wounds. Unquote. So this is someone else who, who exists and who lives and who has life, but without any understanding of Beauty, for example, or friendship, or the obligation to help others. What skilled attention they get, all these dying of their wounds. In other words, this is a man, clove, who has nothing. All the trappings of meaning of what the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan called the symbolic order. All the systems of ethics, culture, all the systems of reference we possess. Law, art, politics, religion. They're all stripped from Clove. He doesn't. believe. He can't believe in them anymore. They've got no purchase on him. Again, this is Clove. This is what he says. I don't understand. I ask the words that remain. Sleeping, waking, morning, evening. They have nothing to say. I open the door of the cell and go. I am so bowed I only see my feet. If I open my eyes... And between my legs a little trail of black dust. But still, cloth goes on, he lives on. You know, as Ham says elsewhere in the play, quote, something is taking its course, unquote. But what is taking its course? What is this something? What goes on in these conditions? What lives on when everything that makes life tolerable and meaningful has been removed? That's the question. That's the question Beckett asks again and again. What is left to go on? So we're back with whatever it is that goes on at the end of the novel, the unnameable, I'll go on, I can't go on, I'll go on. And there it's voiced again by an entity that seems to have gone through some kind of, of divestment, just like Clove. So what is left after that divestment and what goes on at the end of that novel? What continues? Is it a kind of biological drive? And coming back again to think about Herzog, what I was saying at the beginning about the Amazon and proliferation. Is it, are Beckett's characters simply, exp- after everything is stripped away from them in, in the plays and in the prose, which happens so often, are the characters reduced to... Being expressions of a of a kind of instinct or a kind of organic, purely organic urge, are they? Is it just reflex actions—breathing, sleeping, eating, drinking, excreting, reproducing? I don't think so. I don't think we can say Beckett's characters are are in a in a state of nature, whatever we mean by that. And Ham says in Endgame that he and Clove might go sail off and join the other mammals, we can hear the irony in that. Ham and clove are not simply mammals. That's a fond wish. Things would be simple if they were. So, no, despite the attention to the biological actions of the body in Beckett's work, and all the wheezing and the dribbling and all of that, That's not all there is to these characters, to these men and women. If that were all there is, we would not be drawn back to them in the way that we are. Anyway, as one of the characters says in Endgame, there is no nature. So Beckett's idea of life is not political or social or aesthetic. So those are the things that are taken away, that are removed in the course of the work. But it's not natural, biological either. It's human existence in its barest, most vulnerable, most naked, most distilled, most fragile form. But it's also very hard to pin down and well nigh ungraspable, I think, what this thing is, this life. That's neither nature nor culture. And I think if anything, that's the point. I'm going to try and clarify things a little bit by referring to something that That Patrick McGee once said, um, Beckett's very close friend, at one point anyway, his favourite actor, he once said something that's very germane to what I'm trying to get at here by talking about Beckett and life. Now, McGee knew Beckett's work very, very well too, as well as knowing the man. He knew it more deeply than almost anyone, I sometimes think. Beckett's work was McGee's life in many ways. Um, He was somebody who would have discussed the work with Beckett very closely again and again. And he once said something on on BBC Radio during an interview on Beckett's players um, at the same time that he was playing Ham in Endgame. So I'm just going to read that to you. This is McGee, quote, In Beckett's work, the element of diversion, the element of entertainment, the element of comment is reduced to nothing. And the element of exploration, the element of trying to find what remains after the accidentals have been discarded, is formal. And this is why I think if you don't make this distinction between the theatre as entertainment and the theatre as an almost scientific exploration of man, you miss the point of Beckett. So that was McGee, 1964, I think. This idea of Beckett's stage work, anyway, as an experiment on existence, it's an, obviously this is an actor's reflection on the experience of immersing yourself in the work. Um, and that was not always a pleasant experience, as other actors, like Billy Whitelaw, for example, pointed out. Uh, Emer McBride's uh, recent monologue that was created um, during her time as a creative fellow here at Reading, I think, examines this issue as well as kind of Beckett's work as a kind of um, a trial to be undergone by an actor. But it's what what McGee says about the formal quality of the work and the way that it eliminates all the accidentals. Again, what he, he says, the element of exploration, the element of trying to find what remains after the accidentals have been discarded. You know, getting down to the core. I think you know that speaks to what I've been talking about in terms of a kind of stripping away um, of all of the things that, that's, that sustain us. Uh, he points, you know, the theatre as an almost scientific exploration of man, as McGee puts it. Scientific exploration, you know, an experiment on experience. I think there's something, I think just, I think that's very true. I think that it's a very useful way of thinking about Beckett's work. Um, but McGee's description reminds me of another experiment, if we can call it, If we can call it that, it's difficult to know what to call it. I'm thinking of the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben's understanding of of what was going on in Auschwitz. Um, For Agamben, the camp was a device for separating life at its most basic from the legal, ethical, aesthetic and symbolic systems that constitute life as we live it. A kind of stripping away and a a kind of... um, a perverse fascination with um, with this core of life and an attempt to isolate it and an attempt to kind of, almost in a voyeuristic way, to see it. This is at the heart of what Agamben calls biopolitics and biopower after Foucault. And I think that has this idea of, of life as something that, comes to life as a kind of substance that, um, that comes to be the focus of many different agencies during the 20th century, medical agencies, state agencies, um, and its most extreme version, the camps. Um, I think that also speaks to, to Beckett's obsession with life. I think he's in in tune with something there. He's aware of something that's going on in the 20th century. Um, A fascination with something that is ungraspable, but that many disciplines and certain forms of authority want to attempt to quantify and control. I'm getting a bit vague now. Um so I'm I'm going to go back to the texts and um try and explain what I mean by this. A good example is Murphy Beckett's novel from the mid 1930s. It's set in London. It's very sensitive to the historical transformations of its time, particularly to questions of the economy and medicine and mental health. Um in it the main character I'm not going to give it away if you haven't read it, but um, the main character of the title is um, he's in London. He's trying to avoid getting a job, but eventually he has to get a job, and it's in a mental hospital. In fact, it's one of the new mental hospitals that were being built in the mid-1930s. Previously, those with mental health problems were incarcerated in asylums, but in the 30s, we became slightly more enlightened, and the asylums were replaced, or some of them were, by um, by mental hospitals. And it's in one of these that Murphy gets a job. Um, and this kind of transformation in the treatment of mental health is also related to a more general transformation in the treatment of, uh, of health, really, in the 1930s, and a new understanding of the health of the population and how... Maintaining the health of the population is necessary in order to maintain the economy. Murphy is full of stuff about this. You know, it's very, it's very clued in to the relationship between developments in medicine and, you know, other developments uh, in the economy. Um, the clearing of the slums happens in this period as well. And again, that's featured in Murphy. Um, but Another way of understanding this is is um, is thinking of um, that it's 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 the population's life force that needs to be husbanded and conserved and um, and treated uh, because it's a resource, you know, just like oil is, or steel is, or gas is. And again, I think Beckett is aware of this, and you know, in London. In the novel, London is depicted as a kind of massive machine that, that keeps people alive and keeps them ticking over so that they can serve the economy. This is what Murphy calls the big world, okay? Um, the big world. It's the world of the city. It's the world of the economy. It's the world of people functioning normally. Um, and it's the world that Murphy is averse to and other characters in the novel that he's attracted to, like the schizophrenic Endon, also stand outside this big world, this big world of of normal life, if you like, or of life that is being managed properly. Endon and Murphy are not managing their life properly, for the most part. They try to escape, well, Murphy tries to escape from the big world of work and health in the city by retreating into his own little world, Endon, the schizophrenic, has already done it and Murphy envies that. So it's kind of like two attitudes towards life, okay, the big world and the little world. You know, the big world sees life as this resource and it treats it in a in a biopolitical way to follow Foucault and Agamben. Endon and more particularly Murphy treat their treat life as something else, as something much more mysterious than that. Um, something ungraspable, but also as a substance that, or a or an experience that um, allows them to retreat from the world, from the big world of the city. And I think that's important. I mean, for example, when Murphy, you know, famously at the start of the novel, um, when he straps himself to the chair with seven scarves and rocks himself into a kind of trance. Um, where he kind of escapes from all of his cares and just enters this strange suspended world, that's a kind of stripping away, you know, in the same way that I talked about before in terms of Endgame or the unnameable. You know, it's, it's a move away from the big world of work, health, politics, the city, other people. But it's a positive stripping away. For Murphy, you know, he—it's—it's it's the attainment of a kind of trance state, pure existence. What Beckett some, sometimes refers to in his in the 1930s as co anesthesis which is a medical term meaning just the pure functioning of the body, the almost like the noise of the body, the physical noise of the body, the pumping of the blood the firing of the neurons. You know, it's a it's a kind of plenitude for Murphy. You know, it's a positive thing. It's a kind of, it's a vital state, if you like. And I think you can possibly see the influence of not only Schopenhauer here now, but also Henri Bergson. Because Bergson, another philosopher that Beckett was really interested in, also had this idea of a of a life force, um, that underpinned everything and that nobody was really in control of. But whereas Schopenhauer saw it as a kind of death drive, really, this, you know, implacable force, for Bergson, it's a, it's a joyful and creative force, you know. Bergson is like the anti-Schopenhauer, to be quite reductive about it. But I think Beckett is interesting because he's interested in both these guys. And in Murphy... There's a more Bergsonian feel, um, certainly in those moments when, when Murphy succeeds in escaping in his chair. You know, he's immersed in pure life without any of the commitments to society that he is um, he's pretty desperate to avoid. Um, I think my point here is that this notion of life and the experience of life as a positive thing disappears in Beckett. And the Schopenhauerian idea of the life force as this kind of alien, inhuman energy that you cannot escape becomes dominant. Sometime in the 1930s, I think, after Murphy, he begins to move away from, from this... The, the idea of creative evolution that you get in Bergson, of a kind of joyful proliferation, and he moves more towards the kind of the Herzog version of like this insane excess that you're at the mercy of. Why do? Why does that happen? I think it's got something to do with the the political atmosphere in the '30s. Bergson's notion of of vitalism, you know of the Alain Vital, yeah? the kind of the vital spark of, of life that everyone has. It, um, it, it gets co-opted to a certain extent by the whole ideology of fascist authenticity, the vitality of power and decision, the vigorous healthy body strength through joy. Beckett very obviously detests all of that. I mean, the first hint of this is in 1935 when he's writing about Cézanne and he says that he admires one of the French painter's self-portraits because it contains no vitalism, no signs of life, you know. And you can see what he means when you look at Cézanne's Cezanne, portraits. They're architectural, they're monumental and they're very still. They look as if they've been constructed out of geometrical units. The you know the figure of the gardener, for example, looks as if he's merging with the stone and the rocks that surround him. Um, Beckett begins to suspect the whole idea of, li- of, of, of life as a positive thing, and I think one way of kind of understanding this again is that he becomes sensitised to the fact that this notion of life as something which can be quantified um, and managed is a quite sinister development. And the philosophers of vitalism, like, for example, Nietzsche, or someone that Beckett actually mentions in his German diaries, Ludwig Klages, they're all very close to Nazism, eventually, or the Nazis claim them. So again, this leads us back to Agamben and the camps. But there's certainly a change in Beckett. After Murphy, when the notion of life as a vital animating force in the organic is is questioned and, and doubted and is no longer taken as authentic, as a good. It's then that it becomes the focus of a deliberate process of stripping away that mirrors the wider paradigm of the quantification of life that Agamben and Foucault talk about. But in Beckett is carried out critically as writing, as art. And probably the most Extreme account of this stripping away in Beckett's prose works occurs in the novel that he wrote during the war, um, during the Second World War. He began it in Paris, but he wrote it in Roussillon. I'm talking about Watt here. Beckett's second novel, second published novel. He wrote he wrote most of it when he was on the run from the Gestapo. Now, there are clear connections to the world of Murphy in Watt, Like that novel, like Murphy, what, at the end of what anyway, it seems to take place in an institution where the main character and the narrator are incarcerated. At one point in the novel, someone mentions the villas that are dotted across the site of this institution. And that was a term used to refer to um, the units and mental hospitals in the 1930s. It was used right up until relatively recently, actually, villas. So in, Mur- in Murphy, also, there's this binary opposition between the big world of the city and the intimate little world of Murphy's private experience, the world of becoming, the world the world of, of Bergson's Elan Vital or Duré. Okay, so there's that opposition in Murphy. In what Murphy's big world of the city is translated into the world of Mr Knotts, house, okay, that um that the protagonist of the novel, Watt, visits and spends most of his time in. As with Murphy's vision of London, this world, the world of Mr. Knott's house, is is highly systematic. And Watt enters into it in order to work. He looks after Mr. Knott. But the big change is that Murphy's little world, the enclosed sphere, into which he retreats and the place also in which Endon lives has no equivalent in what? There's no sense of a private world, a retreat from the big world. There's no sense of a little world that provides an alternative to the world of labour and bureaucracy and institutions and systems. It's just not there. Murphy has got this conventional opposition between little world and big world. What has a version of the big world, the systematic structure of Mr. Knott's house, but it has nowhere to escape from it, or the only escape from it is into into madness. And I think that's, again, indicative of this change in, in Beckett's attitude, attitude towards this notion of what is at the core of the human, and how can it be reached. In Mr. Knott's house... This is basically the, the plot of the novel, such as it is, in Mr. Knott's house. Watt is stripped of all his symbolic frames in the way that we talked about before with reference to, with, with reference to Endgame and Clove's speech. Even the symbolic system of language famously begins to wither away in Mr. Knott's house, beginning with the scene where Watt looks at a familiar object, a pot, but he can't link it with the sign that stands for it, the word. So what is, is, is an experiment? You know, the novel is, is one of these Beckettian experiments on, on of, you know, that strips away and not just the symbolic systems of the social, but even the cognitive faculties themselves seem to wither away in what memory, for example. You know, the description of Watts' recollection of the visit of the piano tuners to Knott's house. It's the closest we come to an account of Watts' interior life. You know, what's is trying to remember what happened when the piano tuner visited. You know, if if there's anything in the novel which comes in any way close to Murphy's description of how the main character feels when they manage to retreat from the world, it's that moment when what is trying to remember but all he can see is is pure forms drifting It's it's in black and white Beckett describes it it's a completely impoverished experience you know there's a sense of like getting down to the core of the human and finding that there's nothing there rather than finding that there's a whole world there which you do in Murphy, you know, Murphy is is it's a picaresque novel, you know, in the, in the tradition of Quixote, and like Qu- like Don Quixote, Murphy lives in his imagination as a defence against modernity. You know, that's that's kind of what happens in Cervantes, and it's what happens in Murphy. But that doesn't happen in what imagination itself seems to be another faculty that is that is lost by what. So it's not a question of an opposition between this bad system and private experience. Instead the system of Knott's house exposes what completely, strips away his competencies, and leaves and leaves what? Leaves what Agamben calls bare life, perhaps, in the same way as happens in, in Endgame or or the Unnameable. So in a way, one could say that in Murphy, Murphy stays within a, within a kind of modernist paradigm of authentic experience versus the alienated experience of of the masses in the city. In Watt, there is no such opposition because there's no authentic experience at the end of it. At the end of the stripping away, the same system that manages Watt's life and that gives it order, the system of Mister. Knott's house also destroys him and exposes him to utter destitution. And again I think this what accords with Agamben's grim account of the relationship between the management of life as a resource for the economy and the space of the death camps. I just want to say some brief things about Beckett's account of life in in the post-war novels. I feel that these novels in a way represent a step back from the extreme position of Watt. I'm talking about the trilogy here. I'm going to concentrate on Malone Dies. Again, you have that institutional setting in this novel, just like in Murphy and Watt. And and once more Beckett explicitly reflects on life, the idea of life. He mentions it often, the role of life in the space in which Malone is incarcerated. Unlike Murphy and Watt, however, Malone dies. It's a first-person, first-person narrative. And so we've got much more sense of of a self-aware character reflecting on the conditions that he finds himself in. And as a result of this, I think Malone seems capable of actively resisting the reduction and the stripping away and the management of his life in ways that what was not able to do. And Malone's interior life is much less perplexing than Watts. It adheres much more to a conventional narrative. And life itself, the word life, becomes more explicit. Most of all, life is something that Malone wants to be done with. He wants it to be over, and yet it won't stop. This is a quote. He sat and lay down at the least pretext, and rose again only when the alain vital, or struggle for life, began to prod him, in the arse again. And a good half of his existence must have been spent in a motionlessness akin to that of a stone, a motionlessness at first skin deep, but that little by little invaded. I will not say the vital parts. But at least the sensibility, and the understanding. This quotation. It's a quotation that brings together several of the things that I've brought up. There's explicit reference here to, to Bergson, for example, the Alain Vital. He says, Beckett writes, he he lay down at the least pretext and rose again only when the Alain Vital, or struggle for life, began to prod him in the arse. So the Alain Vital is that. Bergson's idea of this pure, joyful life force. The struggle for life is a Darwinian idea of, you know, the natural striving, natural world. But then he undercuts, he undercuts both of these things by talking about, you know, the Hiberno-English comes in and he talks about prodding him, these two forces prodding him in the hours. The quotation is also interesting in that he, um, he refers to the idea of turning to stone. And that's another it's a it's a it's a very familiar trope in Beckett's work of someone becoming mineralized or petrified, turning to stone, becoming a statue. You think of all of those plays where, you know, you've got characters who seem like statues or corpses or inanimate objects. In 1963, for example, the stage directions for play say the three characters are described as f- as having faces so lost to age and aspect as to seem almost part of the urns they are in. So the three characters are in these huge terracotta or stone urns and their faces are made out of the same material or seem to be. The idea of turning to stone, petrification, the inorganic, um, again, I think that's, um, that's Beckett's ultimate riposte to the whole discourse of life. And it's out of this that Beckett develops a whole aesthetic of the inorganic, which I hope we'll discuss on a future podcast on, on Beckett and beauty. But for the moment, I'm, I'm going to finish there. And thank you for listening. And I hope you join us again. Goodbye. <laughs>